Welcome to the show where we delve into the issues affecting the markets both locally and globally and look through a very human lens. I'm delighted to say my guest today is a man who is very much focused on the future. Shargil Bashir, who is the Chief Sustainability Officer and Executive Vice President with FAB. Shargil, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Scott. So, at the top of the 30, we dive into a few of the headlines that have caught our eye. Uh, and I actually want to start with FAB, because just last week, you guys reported a net profit in the third quarter of 2.2, oh, sorry, 2.92 billion dirhams, which is about $800 million. Um, what really interested me was your group CEO, Hannah Al-Rostamani's statement, saying that she was confident in the resilience of this region. And she was talking about... Uh, Although not immune to global headwinds, we believe the economy in the UAE and the broader GCC region, I'm quoting from the bank statement, will continue to outperform the global backdrop. Um, my first question to you is, I'm guessing you share her optimism. For our listeners and viewers tuning in, why do you think that we're going to have a slightly less bumpy ride in this region, particularly when we look across the world and we see the Eurozone reporting 10.7% inflation? I think one of the reasons we are seeing the challenges globally is due to the energy crisis we are seeing right now in Europe, um, which is not the case right now in this region. Mm. We are very strong from an energy perspective, but also the region has over the past decade diversified its economy as well. So we are seeing investments in a lot of the innovative sectors. We have seen a lot of investments going into the fintech sectors. The tourism sector is very, very big, uh, especially in the UAE as well. So with the diverse focus on the economy that has been over the past decades in the region, uh, we believe that we will be immune for, uh, not totally immune for the challenges we are going to face, but we believe that the road will not be as bumpy as we will see in other places. We've got a government that's kind of created uh, an environment here as well though isn't it where investors can come entrepreneurs can easily set up and they can try something fail iterate uh, or then maybe move on to the next piece of technology so that kind of agility and mobility in the market is super important to what you know the prospects moving forward Absolutely. I think that is the foundation that UAE has been built on, right? So so you have taken a lot of big steps. You've gone uh, to the Mars over, over the past 50 years, right? So I think those innovations are so extremely important that um, visionary leadership is extremely important. And I think that you probably have some of the most visionary leaders in this region yeah. who are looking not only ahead 5, 10 years, but actually have a 50 years plan ahead of us, uh, which is extremely important. So, so even you know that there might be a couple of years that might be challenging, but you still have your long-term plan, uh, which you need to follow, which means that you need to invest. So you don't only look at a couple of years ahead, you actually look 50 years ahead. I really want to dive into ESG because um, um, let's, get, let's go through the looking glass a bit on this. I remember even maybe as recently as two years ago, um, ESG, even boardrooms didn't quite know what it was or it was a, a special department off, uh, you know, of its own. Now it's very much woven into the fabric of, ES, you know, of, of boardrooms and C-suites decisions. But for anyone who's out there, even leaders still, can you just talk us through the different elements, you know, the E, the S and the G, mm. what they are and why they're so important? Yeah. So first of all, you're absolutely right. The focus on ESG has moved from nice to have to yeah. need to have. So you need to have a view 
on sustainability on ESG. So E would stand for environment is basically how the environment is impacting your organization and what is your take in order to address the challenges that environment might create. This might be climate change, this can be pollution, it can be other uh, impacts on that. Um, S is the social impact of it. So how do we ensure employee well-being? It's about human rights. It's about modern slavery. Governance uh, is about how do you basically be compliant with the regulation, um, with the legal framework of that jurisdiction you're playing into. Also about having the right structure in your organization, that you have the right level of the board who is overseeing, you have a senior management, you have the different committee structure, which is extremely important. And now coming back to why is it become more important, if we start seeing now some of our key stakeholders for an organization or society, when we see at customers, customers are now looking into buying paying a higher price potentially for sustainable brands and products. So we are actually seeing the newer generation, Generation Z, which you were mentioning before, are willing to pay a higher price for a sustainable product compared to a conventional product. So there is now also becoming an opportunity for you to invest in ESG, not only doing it from a compliance reason as it was for some years ago, but actually trying to find the business opportunity within this as well. When we look at the investors, regulators, uh, employees even, if you want to attract the best talent, they will be asking you, what is your sustainability profile? How does it match to your values? If I'm joining your organization, what, what, kind, what am I signing up to? What kind of organization am I getting involved into? And similarly, the regulators have put launched a lot of new regulation around sustainability, and investors are willing to invest in more sustainable companies. They actually want to move the capital towards companies who are living up to the sustainability um, compliance regulations, are making sure that the uh, sustainability is part of their business model, it being discussed at the right level at the, at the senior management and the board level. That's the direction those things are moving towards. So my question, I guess, is like, I, I, we've seen the narrative turn up um, particularly in volume-wise on the environment. You know, we've had Greta Thunberg at the UN. We've seen the climate change protests taking place in different parts of the world. But it feels like this is something more fundamental is happening at a business level as opposed to a narrative around, you know, the headlines. There is something that's very much important to the operational DNA, shall we say, of companies moving forward. I know I saw recently you quoted in the PwC report around ESG and sustainability and you used the phrase license to operate. And I wondered if you could just unpack that a little bit more. Why is this now the license to operate for companies moving forward? I think there's different layers to this. First of all, um, just I mentioned, if you look at some of your key stakeholders, the customers, the employees, the investors, the regulators, they want you to focus on sustainability. So if you want to have a sustainable business model for the future, you will need to implement sustainability as a part of your organization. You might start with it as a compliance part, and then you need to move ahead and say, what are the kind of business opportunities does this create for you? 
But also the license of operate comes down to that where do you find those opportunities, right? We are seeing right now a world where we saw a lot of climate change records, not for the good reason coming this mm -hmm. year. We've seen the flooding in Pakistan. Millions of people have need to move away from their houses. Yeah. We saw the heat wave in the UK. Uh, we saw the wildfires in in uh, southern Europe. So we are seeing the impact of climate change hitting us in, in a matter we have not seen before. And we now need to change our focus that how do you cater for that? How do you cater for that as an individual, but also companies, right? So if you are lending out money to uh, mortgages, to, to customers, and they live in uh, places that are in risk of flooding, how do you address that? So as companies will start to move into and get a better understanding, the products we are having, the facilities we have, the production places we are having, how are they catered for the climate challenges as well? So that's the climate challenge part that is becoming important. Mm. But then you also have the value discussion as well. Because for the climate part, I, I often say that the climate part seems difficult but the social part might be even more difficult because on the climate part, you have some guidelines. You're having an external focus around this. There is a challenge. We need to get our emissions down. Yeah. Uh, we speak about how you can decarbonize, what are the initiatives you can take. But social side is much more difficult because there's not one set of rules they're not one set of direction. Each country have their own rules, own employment laws. If you look at employee well-being, if you look at how post-pandemic the different countries has approached this, it has been very different. Working from home policies has been very different. Um, from culturally, there are differences as well. So how do you approach that? So we are in a time that a lot of focus is giving to climate for the right reasons, but we also cannot forget what kind of company you are when it comes to your social values as mm. well. They're going to be extremely important as well because they define your focus. You can't be uh, top on E and be bottom on S. You need to find that balance, and it's not easy. You remind me, because um, I think it was about six, seven months ago, the, the PwC again, sorry to keep quoting them, but they do their annual CEO survey. And it was interesting because there were con almost contradictory findings in that report in that CEOs, the thing they recognized that they needed to do was innovate. That was, a, that was top of their agenda. How do they stay relevant in the markets? How do they identify waves of disruption? How do they lean into that disruption and therefore profit for them and create a sustainable future for their companies? Bottom of their list was ESG, um, the social side, you know, uh, equality, diversity, and inclusion, well-being, and ESG. All the things that we know are important to the millennials and the Gen Zs. So if you can't attract that generation of talent, then how are you going to answer that first point, which is you're going to continue to innovate? Yeah, I, th I think one of the challenges that we have never had as much focus on the climate change challenges or ESG as we have right now, mm -hmm. right? Last year, COP26 that took place in Glasgow, we had the highest participation from the private sector ever. And it's probably going to increase over the coming years. Mm -hmm. But one of the challenges with this as well is that the private sector is just recently joined this conversation from a broader perspective. Yeah. So they need to get a better understanding of how do we approach this? 
As an example, when first Abu Dhabi Bank started to work actively with ESG, we made our commitments and put out our plans. We also needed to learn internally how do we approach this. And we are still learning, right? So I think the challenges with this is, is, is that it is such a new thing. And there's no one size fits all. Yeah. Because what I'm doing might not fit what you're doing or a third company or a fourth company. So you need to define your kind of journey of decarbonization, but also your journey on your social responsibility that might not fit as well, uh, right? So each organization will have their unique footprint, their unique values, they will need to align that to. And I think while climate, there is kind of an international um, framework you can follow social is much more related to your values yeah. than it is uh, in other places. So so that's where that um, balance needs to be found. Um, again, not not easy. I, yeah, I mean, if anyone asks me, I'm because I'm, I'm super passionate around the social and it feels like the social part of ESG now is where E was about five years ago. So, um, it's, but I wanted to actually get your take because I know you were super, super passionate about getting FAB to lean into the work of the Net Zero Banking Alliance. And I wanted you to just tell me a little bit more why that, why that was personally passionate. You know, why was that a personal passion project for you? And why did FAB go, yes, let's do this? And t tell us a little bit more about the work of the alliance as well. So Net Zero Banking Alliance is basically a U UN Convent Alliance which is basically the financial institutions that commit to becoming net zero by 2050. When you make this commitment, you also commit to that you will start setting targets for your high emitting sectors, that how would you start reducing um, uh, reducing the emissions within those sectors. Yeah. So basically the financing you're giving out, how do you ensure that that financing is actually starting to reduce emissions instead of just having no view on that? Um, the banks typically do not have factories or production places and so on. So the biggest emission footprint we have comes through our financing. So that's why this alliance is important. The banks have multiple touch points, right? We have touch points across industries. We have touch point across different customer segments. It can be individuals. It can be companies. It can be governments. It can be institutions. So we have a, we have a touch point in order to these different stakeholders to influence them to reduce their emissions. Why it was important for first Abu Dhabi Bank to do so was that due to our size, one of the biggest bank in the region, um, we wanted to influence our um, clients in order to support the transition that is required. We wanted to support our customers and clients into these future trends where you will need to decarbonize. So we needed to understand ourselves what this means and how can we support our clients. And also we have seen the UAE as the first country in the region committing to net zero as well. And being the biggest bank in the country, we of course wanted to support that direction as well to say that how can we support this move going towards decarbonization and starting to look into different sectors and say sector A, B, C, how will this journey look like? What are the innovations that already exist? What are the innovations that will be required in the future? And how fast can these different sectors decarbonize? So that was the reason why we did this. Personally, I think it's extremely important that you have a framework to follow. 
because we all want to have a positive impact on on climate change we want to make a difference but if you don't have a direction to follow it becomes extremely difficult mm -hmm. by joining the alliance we can continue the work we have done we have a framework to follow we can now go out and support our clients we can we can um, educate our colleagues uh, our stakeholders about the importance of the alliance the importance of net zero <clears throat> excuse me and and why the decarbonization is so extremely important I guess it's important to walk the walk as well as talk the talk. If you're going to talk to your clients, you've got to you know, show that you've got some credentials in that space already. Absolutely. And, and again, it's a, it's a learning by doing, right? Yeah. It's a, sometimes we, we speak about it internally. It's like flying a plane while you're building it, right? <laughs> because we don't have the final uh, outcome of how things will look like. We don't have the pathways. We know just like the energy crisis we are seeing right now in, in Europe, um, had we known at that time the energy crisis that we are seeing right now, the whole world's decision on climate might have been different, yeah. right? So we are still seeing that there are countries that are now going back to coal, which we actually discussed last year we wanted to move away from. So again, we, there, there, we will experience shocks along the way. But you need to have that long-term direction in place, and then you can adjust when those challenges come and see how you can you know, address those challenges and then move ahead. You talked about COP26, and you talked about you know record number of uh, private sector companies involved in COP26. If we Obviously, we've got COP27 taking place in Egypt very soon. Look, the year after, we've got COP28 here in Dubai at the site of the expo. Um, how do you think that's going to advance the conversation? It was interesting. We've got two Middle East, you know, locations for the COP conferences, but particularly, you know, with Dubai, we saw everything of the innovation sector, you know, that was surrounding expo. How do you think that that's going to be an amplifier or an accelerant of the conversation here within the UE in the broader region? I think um, I think the COP28 is going to be extremely important. Uh, first of all, of course, it's coming to UAE, but also the position UAE has taken in this discussion is extremely important. Being a fossil fuel economy and being the first country in the region to commit to net zero just highlighted why climate change is such an important topic for the country. And now the COP28 coming to UAE it's going to be extremely important and it's going to be a um, very good place to highlight the focus UAE has had not only recently but over the past decades on sustainability. Um, UAE was the first country who ratified the Paris Agreement in the region as well. Um, we have seen a lot of other commitments coming from the UAE as a country as well. We have seen the immense investments going to, into renewable energy over the past 10 years. We are seeing investments going into hydrogen projects, solar projects as well. So a lot of investments are being done. I think it's more than 200 billion US dollars that needs to be invested by 2030 into renewable energy in UAE alone. So significant amount of investments are happening in this space. And these are being done to future-proof your energy sources and the model and to say that how do we ensure that we can live up to the commitment we have made by 2050 but it needs to be done in a responsible way fossil fuels are not something you can turn on and off 
you need to do it in a phased out approach. You need to make sure that you do it responsibly. You need to make sure that you have the investments to do the green transition right now. We are still seeing some challenges with renewable energy. As an example, I can't move renewable energy from my house to your house at this point. There's still some challenges, and especially if you then move to a country scale, there are yeah. even bigger challenges on that. So we still need a lot of innovations to go into this space in order to future-proof our energy sources for the future. And that's another place where UAE is taking the lead in order to do so. So I expect a COP28 to gather all these different initiatives, have the focus, but also lead on the discussion from a world perspective that how do we make this responsible energy transition that is required. We talked about walking the walk and talking the talk. I mean, one of the things that always strikes me about the UAE, here, the public sector innovates and then the private sector often follows, whereas perhaps in other parts of the world it's the private sector and the public sector tries to learn best practice. Um, with that in mind, you hear companies out here when they talk about the, their ESG agenda, and sometimes it's, it is a nice to have still, and, and it's the first thing that goes when they start looking at the budgets and when they look at the budgets for projects. It's like, oh, yes, well, let's not do that quite as sustainably as we could do because it's going to save us money. As we accelerate towards COP28, do you see or do you feel that the government's going to innovate in this space and we're going to see more regulation coming? Because I think the UE is going to sort of embrace COP28 as a defining moment where it, it really begins to look at the ESG sector very, very seriously. Yeah, I think I think that journey has already started. Yeah. We are seeing more regulation coming. I think there's regulation discussion around disclosure requirements, uh, around taxonomy discussions as well. But I also think that a lot of steps have been taken. We saw the single-use plastic ban coming yeah. out recently as well. Um, and we will see much more coming into that direction. We are also starting to see a lot of initiatives coming locally through the different Emirates as well. We have seen a very good dis um, around... Um, water fountains in Dubai as well. Yeah. We have seen a lot of learnings from the expo that is being used uh, around the, the different cities as well. So I think you're going to see more and more of those innovations coming out and, and getting the support from the public and private sector. Because again, going back to what I started with, no one can solve this challenge by themselves. You will need to have that collaboration between the private and, and the public sector in order to succeed in this. Yeah, I, I mean, I love you talk about the single-use uh, plastic. The amount of times I walk into a supermarket and I've got tons of bags in the boot of my car, and then I'm like, oh, no. But that's kind of where, you know, Behavior change begins, doesn't it? Even on a very small sort of individual basis from the macro down to the micro, we all need to start making some of these changes. Absolutely. So so you and I will start need to make changes as well. So if we don't make them, it's difficult, right? Because we are end of the day also consumers. So if you don't change your behavior, uh, the companies you use will not start making the products for you as well. So it starts with us, but it also important that um, that we have the opportunities to explore as well. Now with the ban on single-use plastic, because you and I could have just stopped using single-use plastic years ago, yeah. but we didn't, yeah. right? Because the opportunity was there. It had but to be forced upon us. Exactly. Now yeah. it's forced upon us. And then you can support that initiative to make sure that you might take the next step and say, okay, I'm going to totally remove single-use plastic from my home as well, yeah. right? If we go back to kind of a business perspective again, um, a guy called Mark Mobius um, 
Templeton Investments now has Mark Mobis Capital. He took a $40 million fund and turned it into $50 billion in terms of investment. And he comes at ESG and the ESG, uh, his entire portfolio now, he's very much focused on ESG compliant companies. And if you talk to him, and he was here in Dubai uh, talking at the Arts Club, he says he approaches it from a pure risk basis. He said, if you have not got an ESG policy and you're not compliant, you represent a risk to me. Therefore, I will not invest in your company. Do you see more of that kind of attitude moving forward where basically coming back to license to operate, if you don't have it, you're not going to be able to unlock investment and therefore you you do have a risk to the sustainability of your company? Absolutely. And I think there's two points to it. First of all, having... Ensuring that the company you invest in has an ESG policy, and of course they're living up to the policy, very mm-hmm. importantly as well, make sure that there are different points they're addressing. There are some key points on environment, on social and governance they're living up to. Right. So first of all, that gives you kind of a guarantee, so to say, that they're living up to some kind of framework. Yeah. Okay. The second part, which is also extremely important, is that if you need to be a relevant company in the future, how are you addressing the challenges of climate, right? So so if you're uh, having your big factory somewhere in an area which is high risk from a flooding perspective in the future, how are you going to address that challenge? So there might be a consequence of that in the future, which you need to think about as an investor. What kind of risk does that possess? There's also the whole part of modern slavery. We have seen a lot of companies in the U.S. coming under attack that, you know, they are not paying uh, enough to their employees. The minimum wages is not enough. So you also have that part of challenge that if all your employees go on strike, what kind of company are you investing in? So that's why if a company had the policy and they're living up to that policy, that gives you some kind of assurance as an investor to say, okay, then they're at least living up to these kind of setups. What we then need to move towards now is to get some alignment across the disclosures and to create transparency so you can also share with the investors that what are we as a company doing. One thing is to have the policy, but also now showcasing how do we live up to this policy. So we need to now create that transparency. And the challenges so far has been that we don't have, just like on a reporting, it gets a little bit technical. When we do financial reporting, there are some disclosure requirements. There are some protocols you need to follow. We don't have those kind of protocols at this point on ESG. They are being worked on. We do hope that they will come very soon or hopefully over the next 12 to 18 months they can be implemented, which is going to be extremely important because then you will have that transparency to see this company has a policy. How are they living up to this? And then it will ensure the true transparency through the value chain where the company can disclose this, the investors, customers, stakeholders can see how is this company living up to their ESG commitment as well. So we're going to get to the point of the podcast and in the show where I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you to be a prognosticator and make some predictions. I'm going to make some predictions myself as well. Um, what what do you think is the net one are going to be the most significant things we're going to see in the space of ESG, perhaps over the next 12 months looking forward? And how's that going to impact the business community here? Oh, 12 months, that's not a long time for a make a prediction. Uh, I would say if you look um I would say from short to medium term, okay. for the next two, one to three years, I think we will see a time where we all will start looking into our own carbon footprint, mm-hmm. 
that uh, you and I will say, okay, I'm using this much uh, carbon footprint. This is my carbon footprint. What is yours? And in order to reduce this, I need to do A, B, and C. I need to, you know, uh, drive electric vehicle instead. I need to uh, eat less red meat, uh, as an example. <laughs> oh, yeah. Anyone <laughs> watching this on YouTube so on. will know that one. <laughs> so, so I think we we're going to get to a point that, you know, we will individually start tracking what kind of footprint we have on the planet is going to be extremely important. I think I think that is something I, I foresee in a not too distant future. I'm going to throw back one more, one more prediction as well, which is based on um, the Signal re very recently did their well-being survey. What was really interesting that they do an annual survey that last year, 50% of people said that they were willing to, coming back to what you were saying about values, said they were willing to quit their job to seek a role that maybe even at less money that suited their work-life balance or suited mm -hmm. their values and their principles and their purpose more. And actually, they came back this year and asked those people again, and four out of five had actually followed through with that. Mm -hmm. And the surveys were showing that the UE has created this market where talent is very mobile. And when asked again this year, that number was 55%. So I really think there's some big questions around the S, that social in the ESG, that companies are going to have to deal with. So that's my prediction moving forward, that S will come to the top of the agenda to rival both G, because we know G is big already, supply chain, you, there's legislation there in, in, in place already. So I think ESG, all three letters, my prediction is that they're all going to have equal weight moving forward. Your thoughts on that one? I think on the on the again short to medium term, we're gonna see a lot of focus on E yeah. right now. It's a it's an important Particularly topic, with COP. especially with COP, but yeah. also due to the energy crisis, it has it has sparked that discussion again. That the direction and discussion we've had over the past couple of years, where do they stand in this kind of a shock situation? You're well, it's kind of like crisis. the accelerant, like the pandemic was for the future of work and remote working. Yeah, exactly. So I think I think that's gonna be important, but I do. I foresee the S being the biggest hurdle we will need to go through as a community, as a society uh, across the world. How do we address the challenges on us? And what you're mentioning um, with people quitting their jobs, this is what we call the big resignation, right? Mm -hmm. So people across the world yeah. are resigning, maybe on post-pandemic, but also because they need to understand where does their values fit and especially when we look at Generation Z, yeah. who's coming into the workforce, taking the lead, it's the value their job create to them is much more important whether you're paying them 5 or 10% more in salary. And that's what's going to be extremely important. And how do you address those challenges? Having, having uh, employees who work for the same place 30, 40 years, uh, that kind of loyalty might not be if you as an organization is not are not investing in those employees. So the S is definitely going to get more important over time, but I think that it's going to be the most difficult one as well because it's such a big topic. It's about human rights. It's about gender balance. Um, it's about gender balance across different sectors as well. Mm -hmm. So it's just not gender balance in, in general, but also through those different pockets we see at different places. So how do we address those challenges? And again, one size fits all will probably not work. We can have one kind of framework, but each country will have their unique challenges. It can be the level of education in one country. It can be something else in a different country. So our environment have a high level framework we can follow from UN, from the different energy uh, institutions. 
S is going to be somehow more difficult to address. We will need a lot of regional solutions to that. So I foresee that being the, the more difficult one we will need to approach. That feels like a kind of mic drop moment where we can bring this conversation to a close. Sharjil, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, I've been your host, Scott Armstrong. It's been a genuine, com- uh, genuine pleasure to have the conversation with you today. And I hope our listeners and viewers tune in for more conversations moving forward brought to you by First Abu Dhabi Bank. Thank you, Sharjil. Thank you very much, Scott. Thank you very much for having me.